Greetings. Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's most definitely right now in November of 2020 forgotten the questions. Thank you for listening this week. If you like what you're hearing or enjoy the show, please share it with a friend and say positive, lovely things about us on Twitter and Facebook. This is the biggest way that podcasts grow. If you haven't yet given us a five-star review, pause what you're doing right now and go and do so. Follow if us. You have, if, if you have a time machine, go back in time and send out a fleet about <laughs> the show. Right. Because fleets, fleets are no more, right? Fleets are no more. If you have a hot tub time machine, go back in time <laughs> and do it from your hot tub, which would be even better. For those of you who don't know what fleets are, they're like stories, if you know what stories on Facebook and Instagram are. But I understand that they're gone now. So so. follow us on Twitter at at clergylay and join our Facebook discussion group. I'm Kirk Haberman, a church musician, and this is my brother Chris, a priest. Hey, Chris, how are you? I'm a little sad, Kirk. I mean, fleets, I I lost them before I ever knew them. I, I fleeted once. I fleeted once, and then I, uh, I grumpily I tweeted about um, how sad it was that we were going to now have to make fleet a verb, because this is kind of a, 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 a spreading virus in our language, turning nouns into verb, like transition and impact. Um, but it looks like Twitter uh, decided, to, thought better of it, and took him away. Though now, I'm back on Twitter. I'm looking right now, and I see that fleet was nine hours ago. That fleet was four hours ago. Maybe they're back. I don't know. So maybe I'm wrong. Well, listeners, that was our technology update. Um, <laughs> check back in next week for what's a new. A super on competent technology update. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's guess at what, what uh, has happened in the last week. We so are Kirk, really you- plugged in in Silicon Valley. Just saying. <laughs> so, Kirk, you're telling me that um, you had a cute Daphne story. Oh, gosh. Yeah. No, I was at Vestry last night. And what is, uh, uh, hey, hey, Kirk. Yeah. Um, we like to demystify things. What, what the heck is the vestry? Uh, vestry is the governing body of an Episcopal or Anglican parish. So the church council, I think probably if you're in uh, the Protestant world elsewhere, what's it uh, in the Roman Catholic world? Or is there no know. such thing? I don't know. And, mm. and of course, there's different um, polities. So um, some elder-led churches would have an elder board. Okay, um, that's right, that's right. In the Reformed world, they call it a consistory. I'm not sh- quite sure. That's a fun word. Yeah. It sounds like a, something like, like a well that you'd be like thrown into, like Jacob was thrown into the consistory. Consistern. <laughs> right, <laughs> that's yeah. maybe what it's and, reminiscent But of. in fact, um, it's not just different names uh, for the same thing. They are in fact quite different things because uh, we have different kind of models of churches. Uh, but that's a conversation for another time. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, and, you're, you're at Vestry. 
I was at Vestry and, uh, and my wife texts me saying that Daphne is running around the house bellowing that venerable old Christmas carol, Gandalf the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> and, um, and, and I don't know if she got it from, uh, from a conversation about Lord of the Rings that was happening. I think she probably got it from um, the fact that uh, um, we name our cars in our house. And this is actually how I should have began this story uh, to, give, to give background on this. Um, so, so right now our van is, um, uh, what's, what's our van's name? This is, this is going to be an even dumber story because I don't know our van's name. Christopher just spat out his coffee. Um, our, our van's name in the past, uh, what was, no, we named our van after the previous owner, um, which Kim got such a huge kick out of. Was it Herbie? No, what's, yeah, that, no, it's not Herbie. Um, so previous automobile's name, our previous Toyota Corolla's name was Gerald um, because it looks so um, kind of, uh, bland and dumpy that Simon thought it just looked like a Gerald. Um, our previous. Oh boy, I hope we have a few listeners named Gerald. Yes, we yes. love you, Gerald. Yeah. You are We've had presidents named Gerald. Gerald's a venerable name. Now, if you use venerable, Gerald Glass voice. was named Gerald. Your Gerald favorite Glass? Timberwolf. Lazy Timberwolf. Bill <laughs> Musselman. Uh, uh, Challenge him to a race, right? Yeah, beat him in a race. Yeah. <laughs> An NBA coach beat Gerald Glass in a race just to prove how lazy he was. Uh, we've had Ruby because um, our, our previous uh, Chrysler Town and Country was a deep red, and Kim was tired of having being surrounded by all males, as she used to say. Only even the pet is a male. Um, so she, this is before the arrival of Daphne and our new dog Iris. So we got uh, when when I got T-boned a year ago last. At, T-boned at, I think, maybe three miles an hour. <laughs> the most anticlimactic car accident ever. This was before the podcast. That would have been a great story. Um, and, uh, and sadly, Gerald, um, who had only minimal damage, but it was enough to total poor Gerald. Gerald had been paid off for five years, man. I love driving paid off vehicles. And so we got a new Toyota Corolla, and it was white. And uh, they were going to name who they wanted to name her several things. And I said, no, it's Gandalf the White. It's Gandalf the White. Our new car is Gandalf the White. And so we, I've been driving Gerald for, not Gerald, I've been driving Gandalf for uh, 12 months now. And uh, so maybe that's where Daphne got Gandalf from. Or maybe they were having, the children were legitimately having a Lord of the Rings conversation. But in any case, um, in her head, Gerald sounded like Rudolph, or not Gerald. I, I'm hung up on Gerald. This is a really old man thing. Uh, <laughs> this is going to be good episode. Gandalf reminded her of Rudolph, which reminded her of the coming Christmas season. And so she wanted to sing about Gandalf the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Yeah, this is going to be a spacey episode, I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> we did word association with Kirk. That was, that's what that segment was called. Uh, confused I, word I'm ready for my pudding at the nursing home here. Uh, Kirk, I remember in those days when your wife felt a little bit overwhelmed by men in her home, mm -hmm. boys. Um, and this was before you got Ruby. Um, and like, <laughs> I remember she's like, I want one girly thing. So she bought herself a pink coffee maker yes yes it was nice and pretty and pink it's, a, it's uh -huh. very nice very lovely looking and she's like i want to have at least one thing that's not just like you know 
destroyed and boyish and <laughs> right which we will touch upon later yeah so kirk i am uh lamenting uh loss right now yeah um, right now as we speak um i am supposed i was supposed i was planning on being in the car on my way to your house uh, my family yep. planned a a trip to your house which uh used to be a big thing uh Starting in, I think, 2010 was our first year that we did uh, in a Thanksgiving trip out east. So my uh, Kirk, my brother, lives a uh, listener in Pittsburgh or in the Pittsburgh area, and my in-laws live another five hours east of there. So what we would do is we would drive from here to Kirk's house, which is – I wouldn't want to drive any further in a day, especially going east. Going east it's a thousand miles. Because you lose an hour – yeah, it's a thousand miles and you lose an hour. Coming this way, it's it's easier. Like you get up at five or whatever, and it's essentially two hours based right. on the time difference. Um, right. uh, and so like when when you arrive at eight after a long day of driving, it's not so bad. But when you arrive at like ten thirty, yeah, um, you've been driving all day. It's it's just like Ugh. so. Um, so that's that's ten years. Well, not ten years of trips for us. It was five years of trips. Unfortunately, um, is that like we had this annual trip that we would take to your house. Um, and it was so a good great. time because I was a teacher or I was a student uh, in seminary. And so like you get a little bit of time off. It was a good time to take the kids out of school because they don't miss a ton of school. And basically uh, the summer, my wife could only get one week off. So usually we would do something basically because you're a teacher, Kirk, you would come this direction. And so uh, we would take a week off then to see you guys. And then in uh, Thanksgiving, we would drive out to your place, but also see my in-laws. And that became this annual thing. Five years ago, um, all that stopped um, on our on our way home on our son's second birthday. Uh, yep. He was hospitalized in kind of a traumatic event for our family. Uh, we were in Somerset County or Somerset, yep. Pennsylvania, which is the place where only bad things happen. Um, <laughs> for the coal miners and for our the, family, that's where the coal miners were trapped. If anyone remembers that from yep. like 2004 or whatever uh 2005 maybe um that's where um flight 93 flight 93 crashed and that's where uh we had to pull uh we had to pull off the road because isaac was struggling to breathe and go to the er and get admitted and that was a uh, that was the last trip five years ago yeah. um between planting a church and and isaac's um health issues and his need of of uh of constant care of infusions every two weeks uh we just haven't made it back out so this was going to be our first family trip to kirk's house i've been out twice um flown out just on my own um and been able to spend time with your family but um it's the first time in five years that we're going to be out as a family and we had to cancel that due to covid due to um i mean pennsylvania is essentially locked down and uh uh, legal, we would be breaking the law by not yeah. quarantining on yeah. the way in. But also, uh, our daughter was was um, exposed, and so we're kind of quarantining. We're, we are quarantining as a family, and uh, so uh, people have asked me because, like, people know how much I was looking forward to this. If if oh, you must be really upset, and it's like, yeah, I am, but also it hasn't quite hit me yet. Yeah, um, and I think this weekend it'll really start to sink in because, uh, in some ways, I've prepared myself. I've been preparing myself to cancel the trip. Uh, originally, we were going to fly, but then we didn't want to actually buy the tickets because we didn't want to have to go through the the hassle of of getting a refund if right. if we had to cancel. That's right. Yeah. And um, so so we've been preparing ourselves. We kept saying 
we're planning to go, we're planning to go, and then we had to ultimately pull the plug. And unfortunately, Kirk, it looks like you may have already, or you kind of are preparing yourself at least to cancel your Christmas trip, which you're planning to take. Um, yeah, to yeah. I mean, I, 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 I cannot foresee um, are the current uh, restrictions lifted uh, between now and uh, and Christmas. But but who knows? But who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, so I, listeners, uh, we're we're all in this together. We're yeah. this this is a we're we're all making crazy sacrifices. So let's encourage one another in this. Uh, it's gonna be hard. We're gonna be isolated, um, but we have Zoom and and other things. Let's let's stay connected. Ab- absolutely, absolutely. Well, we got a we got a lot we want to talk about. So uh, let's uh, let's dive right into the gospel. Let's do it. gospel comes from Matthew chapter 25 verses 31 through 36. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you, a stranger, and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kirk, we are at the end of Jesus' teachings. In this gospel text, Jesus' final discourse has come to a close. And there's a beauty, uh, there's a beauty to it. These last teachings fit together so well. And this fits so well with 
this theme of Christ the King Sunday. Uh, so in Matthew 24 and 25, he taught with four parables about an absent master who will one day return to take an account. To take account, sorry, not an account, but to take account. And now, after these parables, we get an apocalyptic drama. And so one scholar contrasts apocalyptic dramas with parables in this way. Parables begin with a familiar, this-worldly scene, which then modulates into a new dimension of meaning. This scene, in contrast, begins with an otherworldly depiction of the parousia, which is a, a fancy name, the Greek name for the arrival of Jesus, the, the, the return. The coming of the Son of Man with his angels in all the gathering of all nations before his throne. And then it modulates into affirmations of the ultimate importance of ordinary this worldly deeds. So before we jump into this apocalyptic drama, again, not, not a parable, let's take a step back. I'm rolling up my sleeves, Kirk. Um, uh -oh. Let's take a step back. Not just a small step, a huge step back. So I'm preparing um, our listeners and, and Kirk here for a not-so-brief bit of context. All of us Christians in the West are products of the Reformation. It's just a reality the most Catholic Catholic would shudder at the abuses of the Western church prior to the Reformation. And so uh, the, the Catholic church went through its own Reformation, which depending on who you are, you might call it the Catholic Reformation or the Counter-Reformation. So the, the, the Roman church was reformed um, and it was purged of, of certain abuses, but it also kind of dug its heels in in some ways. Um, they reformed, but, but also uh, uh, solidified themselves in certain doctrines that, um, that uh, were very much at odds with the complaints that specifically Martin Luther had um, in the 95 Theses, for example. So in that way, we are all products of the Reformation. Uh, the, the Protestants reformed in their own way. The Catholics had their own counter-reformation. Um, each of us reformed and we are products of the Reformation. And those on the Protestant side are tempted to overreact, to overcorrect. Uh, we Anglicans, Kirk, we certainly think so. Um, and what you find out when you study church history is that there wasn't a single Protestant Reformation. So it's, it's really inaccurate to say, uh, to say, oh, the Protestant Reformation this or the Protestant Reformation that. Um, there were actually four distinct Reformations that happened during that era. They had similarities, but uh, the four Reformations were the Lutheran Reformation, the Anglican Reformation, the Radical Reformation, and the Reformed Reformation. Distinct movements, distinct ideas, and we Anglicans, we had the most conservative Reformation um, uh, on, on our side. And uh, so I want to contrast that a little bit with the Reformed Reformation, just to uh, show the different approach. The Anglican Reformation was a dispute about authority. So what is our authority as Christians? Well, well uh, most of us in the Protestant side would say scripture. Right. Um, where, uh, uh, is it the earthly church or is it scripture? And, and, uh, Catholics would say, no, the, like there is a certain teaching authority that the Pope in the magisterium has. Um, and we talked about the passage where Jesus responded to, to Peter and said, uh, so Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ. So what did we disagree on? What Jesus meant when he said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Now I say to you that you are Peter, 
And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I mean, we disagree on one word, right? What does this mean? Right, <laughs> on right. this rock, right? this, this definite article, this, um, is it the confession of Jesus as Christ? Is it the person of Peter? Is it the eternal office of the Bishop of Rome, which is the Bishop of Bishops, a position which holds authority over and above scripture now and forever and everyone who holds that seat? Um, there was no dispute in the early church that the Bishop of Rome held a special place among bishops. The Bishop of Rome was known as Papa or Pope. Um, this was not really contested. Uh, but the contemporary Roman Catholic view of the papacy being an office able to make doctrine and sit in authority above scripture is something that was not present in the early church. As the centuries passed in the early church, and as we went from, from the second century to the third to fourth, fifth, into the, to the Middle Ages, corruption found its way into the church. As money and politics entered into decisions made by the pope. And so we know of Martin Luther that he listed 95 separate, uh, separate beefs he had with <laughs> the church. Probably the most famous one was the sale of indulgences. Um, so this, this involved money. Um, but power also was, was something that, that kind of corrupted uh, uh, the church and came to be part of the decision-making process for Rome. And uh, I think we could argue about the strategic value of the Crusades even if we have qualms about the morality of them. Uh, and we certainly uh, would have an issue with the Pope's gift of an indulgence for those who fought in the Crusades, which probably encouraged war crimes outside of the targeted goal of reclaiming Jerusalem. Um, but we, as Anglicans, we consider ourselves Catholics, small C Catholics. Um, uh, and so sometimes we say Roman to d differentiate between like what we mean, like the Roman Catholic Church with, um, cause, because we see ourselves as Catholics. And part of that is continuity with the original church that we enjoy. And I'm doing- uh, Yeah, the listener is missing a bunch of great gestures in your part. You're yeah, I'm visually demonstrating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have something called apostolic succession. So the original apostles ordained the first bishops and uh, priests and deacons. And, and these bishops consecrated bishops who consecrated bishops who consecrated bishops who consecrated a bishop who ordained me. And we have the same polity, this threefold order of ministry of bishop, priest, and deacon um, that emerged in the first century. We, we, we kept that. We retained that. Um, we have apostolic, uh, apostolic succession. The church in connection uh, with who we were in the first century and the second century is really important to us as Anglicans. But uh, we, we also believed during the Anglican Reformation that the church was corrupt. And with scripture as our authority... In the Anglican Reformation, we did our best to remove what we saw as unscriptural additions, corruptions that um, were added to Christ's church, medieval superstitions. Um, Kirk, you've said that a low view of the church is a low view of the Holy Spirit. Yes. And another way of saying that is to say that if God wanted his church to look different, it would. And we, I mean, of course, we say the same thing about the Bible. Uh, we embrace what's called lower criticism, where we quibble about this letter or that letter, which may vary from manuscript to manuscript. And, and of course, I'm oversimplifying here, <laughs> but I know I'm getting far afield. So, uh, and I haven't even started to talk about this week's gospel. Uh, 
we embrace lower criticism, but we struggle with higher criticism where large swaths of scripture are thought uh, by some of these higher, uh, these kind of critical scholars. In fact, um, big parts of scripture, they, they say these were later editions by redactors, later redactors, um, and where some scholars separate the, the Jesus of history from the Christ of faith um, and feel like they alone can see which gospel texts are authentic, and then they toss up the rest. Again, this is an oversimplification for the sake of time. My point is that if God wanted scripture to look different, it would look different. We trust the Holy Spirit that he is guiding this. So the Holy Spirit has to be present in the church, even as we've had our failures here and there. Like we can point to, to, to sin and corruption and, and um, failures of the, of the formal church. That happens. But the church is also an awesome inheritance. And this is where I really want to get to the contrast between the Anglican Reformation and, and the Calvinist or Reformed Reformation, where the Anglican approach was to remove the unbiblical parts of the faith and practice that had crept in, things that had become doctrine not from Scripture, but because of the authority of the Pope and his teaching authority. Um, we wanted to remove those things arguing with scripture. The Reformed Reformation's approach was entirely different. Um, they said the whole thing is hopelessly corrupt and we must rebuild from, from the whole thing from the scripture back up. So the things which are part of our heritage going back to the first century, they got rid of. Um, we kept those things. The things that we practice in the church um, but weren't in scripture were removed. And so this is a big difference in, in approach in the Reformation, which I hope uh, if, if you've seen the Reformation as just this one kind of unified thing, um, I hope this has kind of helped you to understand that, that it, it wasn't. Right. So why, am I, so, so, so why am I talking about this? I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm not preaching Sunday, and so I'm getting my time in the spotlight now. Uh, that was supposed to be funny. Um, <laughs> Kirk's <laughs> taking notes. He's not listening. Um, but I want to talk about how <laughs> – <laughs> how we are all products of the Reformation, even Roman Catholics. Um, the church had been corrupted, and there were multiple ways of addressing this corruption. Um, one thing that makes me sad is how good, faithful Catholics demonize Martin Luther, St. Martin. <laughs> and where I, when I see them doing that, I feel like they're throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Right. Um, some even blame him for all the problems of modernity, which were coming anyway. Let's, um, uh, let's contextualize this for our Roman Catholic listeners. Um, this is like when you hear Protestants dismiss Thomas Aquinas. Mm, mm. Like he's a great doctor of the church that no one has any business dismissing, right? Likewise, Martin Luther. Anyhow, continue. Yeah, and, and I've seen some people react to, to Reformation Day saying, this is the day that Luther launched a movement where everyone's his own pope. <laughs> where... Um, I, I, I disagree with that take. Um, that, I believe, was baked into the cake of modernity. Luther yeah. wasn't the cause of this. Luther, in fact, loved the church and did not seek to start his own church. That was not part of his agenda. But when he realized that he was unable to reform the church, as he argued scripture, with, yeah. and canon lawyers would retort with canon law and slam dunk on him and win the argument, um, he, he began to realize that he, the reform was not going to be possible inside the church. And this may be, this is definitely another story for another time, yeah. but the, but the inception of a thousand popes, every man a Pope um, in Protestantism, which is shameful. Um, that comes from mm -hmm. um, yeah. non, non-conformism in the church of England, 
So everyone that loves their Puritans, <laughs> right? The, the church, something broke in the Church of England in the 1600s after the, the Civil War. But then it also comes from um, uh, Anabaptism in, uh, in, on the continent. I mean, so we can definitely trace that back. We can trace its lineage and someday maybe we can tell that story because uh, what's ca often called the Magisterial Reformation retained the notion of Catholicity. Um, that there are one people, one church. So, yeah. but I, I, no. I, I, I'm derailing you. I'm so good yeah, at so, derailing no, you. No, no, no. No, that's good. I, I don't want to have a monologue. Um, so, so, like, Luther was frustrated in these arguments with canon lawyers that, like, the plain words of Scripture um, would lose the argument to canon law. So, again, on the Protestant side, Scripture is the authority. So when official doctrine is at odds with the plain words of Scripture, we have no choice but to go with the plain words of Scripture. So um, the Roman Catholic Church had a self-consciously conservative and even a reactive Reformation, doubling down, essentially, on some doctrines that we Anglicans had issues with. And, and we can kind of talk about those at, at a future point. That's not what I'm getting at right now. Um, in that way, we are all products of the Reformation. And one of the single biggest rediscoveries of the Reformation was the doctrine of justification by faith. Here, this here. biblical doctrine is good news for the world. So what is justification? Justification is um, this, this legal term of, of essentially be, being declared righteous. Um, our former uh, priest used to talk about it as um, having the charges being, not just being forgiven, but having the charges dropped, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so Paul in the book of Romans talks about justification by faith, that God's project is to justify sinners. And friends, this is good news for the world. Uh, th th this is good news that this misattributed quote, this uh, Aristotle quote that is not actually an Aristotle quote, um, <laughs> we are, that it's good news that it's not true. This quote that we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. Okay, so this, this may be true for those training for athletic excellence, but it's not true in the most important sense. The good news of the gospel is that we are not what we repeatedly do. Let me repeat that, listener. We are not what we repeatedly do. That is the good news of the gospel. You are not right? the sum of your sins. Exactly. Our identity is not found in what we've done, our identity is found in Jesus Christ. And if we find our identity in him, um, I'm sorry, in, if we find our identity in what we do, there is nothing but guilt and shame and misery there. There's nothing but inadequacy there that we find our identity in Jesus Christ and in his righteousness. Um, and so we are, as Kirk pointed out last week, in this season where we make a turn to look to the last day when Christ shall return to wipe away every tear. We long for this return because like justice, we will see justice. We will see him come with justice and righteousness. But Kirk, what's the flip side of that? He will also come with judgment. We'll yes. talk about this later. What yeah. that visually will look like on the day, the day of doom as Christians used to call it. Each one of us will have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But we will not make our case based on our own merits, but on the free gift of righteousness of Jesus Christ. His merit becomes ours. Uh, so because the Reformation had such an emphasis on rediscovering this idea of God justifying the ungodly, of God justifying the sinner, 
some in the Reformation tradition get really nervous <laughs> about texts like today's. Right. Yep. Where it seems like Jesus is teaching a theology of salvation by works. Likewise, on the other side, socially conscious Christians love this text as a way to feel superior to those who emphasize doctrine. They're like, nope, it's about deeds, not creeds. It, it rhymes. Thing. It's got to be true. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah, that's how, that's how it works. <laughs> I don't make the rules. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. We don't have the option of reading the Bible with scissors like Thomas <laughs> Jefferson. So Thomas Jefferson cut out the miracles and then kept in the ethical teachings. We can't cut out the stuff inconvenient. He, he probably loved this text right here. Oh, I bet he did. We can't, but like, likewise, we can't cut out inconvenient stuff either that don't fit our preconceived notions. That's not what the Bible is. I've droned on for a while, but I want <laughs> you, listener, to understand this. So pay attention now, okay? What's important about the Bible is that it's God's revelation to us. Here's the thing. God's revelation is not inside of us. It's outside of us in scripture. Therefore, we can't come to the Bible thinking that we can use our own intuitions to accept some of the Bible and reject other parts of it that don't fit our presuppositions. We come to the Bible knowing that it is God breathed. It is inspired and we must conform our lives to this outside world from God, no matter how inconvenient it is. We must read the, the, the whole Bible and build a biblical theology from the Bible. So how does the teaching of justification by faith work with passages like this or the entire <laughs> book of James? Um, because we believe that not only is the Bible inspired, but we believe that it is internally consistent. That makes a difference. It's not that we have just these conflicting claims. So uh, those progressive Christians who want to slam dunk on the perceived lack of concern for the poor that their conservative brothers and sisters have, they neglect the fact that this this is a, a story about judgment. <laughs> about so while they, hell. <laughs> yeah, so while they love the socially conscious part, the idea of the goats being sent away to internal punishment, right. internal punishment is highly uncomfortable for them. So let's get to it. What is this parable about? Is this a text which conflicts with Paul's teaching of justification by faith? Of course not. Like I said, we believe the Bible is internally consistent because it is. Um, is this a teaching? Bottom line. Is this a teaching which emphasizes the Christian duty to provide for the hungry, thirsty, naked, lonely, sick, and imprisoned? Well, obviously. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about it. I don't see how you can read the entire book of Matthew and be surprised by this text. God calls us to, prov to, to, prov to provide mercy, not just like merciful feelings, but to actually provide tangible mercy to those who lack in any way. If someone doesn't have a coat, give them your coat. <laughs> he calls us not to just to pray for them, but to provide materially for them. And Christians do. The book of Matthew also teaches that the church is a mixed body of wheat and weeds, of prepared bridesmaids and unprepared bridesmaids. So it's no surprise that there are some in our midst who have hearts that are hardened towards the poor. But Christians in history have always had a heart for the poor. Christians were known in the early church, uh, they were known for adopting babies who were left in the dump. They were left for dead. And Christians would adopt them. They're like, okay, you're a Haberman now. The emperor, the Roman emperor Decius, who presided over one of the most intense persecutions of Christians, was asked by his advisors to just cool it a bit 
because the plague, not the black plague, which came later, not the bubonic plague, but you know, plagues would come and like, like one we're living through now. Right. <laughs> Plague was ravaging the empire and Christians were known to have mercy for the sick. And they were the only ones in the empire caring for those who were suffering. Like the cities were emptying out, but the Christians were staying and they're like, all right, cut out with like, just wait on your persecution. Once the plague is gone, we're good. But it's the Christians who are basically um, volunteer nurses right now. Christians have been at the forefront of mercy efforts throughout the ages with hospital systems being founded by Christians for the sake of caring uh, about the sick. The hospital th that my wife works at has a super cool history. It was founded by nuns who moved to South Dakota to be teachers. But when sickness hit the area, I don't know what the particular disease was, the bishop said, hey, would you mind doing a little bit of mission drift? You know, usually mission drift is negative. He right. didn't say mission drift. He, he was like, would you mind putting aside the teaching thing and opening a hospital because that's the need right now and thus was the birth of a hospital um which now has 200 locations in five states and 16,000 employees and to this day this health system has the same values it was founded with they seek to make people well in all ways regardless of the patient's ability to pay it's amazing christians like william wilberforce in england and countless abolitionists in america and civil rights activists we're responsible for all sorts of good things. There is a pernicious lie out there that Christians are unmoved by the concerns of the hungry, thirsty, sick, naked, lonely, and imprisoned. This isn't just untrue. Um, I'm sorry. This lie, it's a lie. It's not true. And that's exactly what we are seeing in this passage from Matthew 25, in this apocalyptic drama. We are seeing that mercy for the needy was so natural for the sheep, for Christians, that when Jesus said they did it for him, they were like, when? Right. When did we do those things? Because, Kirk, they didn't even realize they were doing it. Right. It was just so natural as Christians to provide for the needy. So this isn't, this isn't a check your fruit text. Precisely. This is... This is on the last yeah. day, the righteous, um, like, as we're separated, um, our faith will be evident, um, not because we are, are showy in our, in our works, but it's, it's just so natural. We didn't even realize we were doing it. Um, and the flip side of this is that Jesus is teaching that mercy for the needy is for him. When we serve the poor and needy, we serve Jesus. And what an honor it is to serve the one who became a servant for our sake. And in a way, those who are separated out for judgment, these goats, are trying to justify themselves by their own works. Um, they're like, when did we see and fail to minister to you? <laughs> My emphasis. <laughs> I mean, if we had seen you, Jesus, we surely would have helped you. Uh, and Jesus is like, no, when you failed to serve the least of these, you failed to serve me. Service is not showy or splashy. It is everyday and mundane. It means loving your spouse and kids when they are hard to love. It's serving the poor every day and not just on Thanksgiving. Although I do think it's powerful on holidays to serve, like you show your kids what your values are. But I was listening to a podcast recently, Kirk, with, with these pastors uh, who were talking about serving on Thanksgiving. And, and this one shared a story about how like they were full of volunteers. And this frustrated woman called in and was like, I'm frustrated. Like, 
uh, I, I called all these places and I can't volunteer. Um, and he's like, well, I'm sorry, we're full too. Cause at some point volunteers just get in the way. Huh, right. She was like legit angry with him. She was like, what? Like, how am I supposed to serve? Ah, like, and he's like, well, we do a weekly meal so you could serve any week. <laughs> this, this woman saw serving as performative as like a one day a year oh, thing rather right. than a lifestyle. Um, this woman would have been a goat would have tried to make her case on the last day when she saw Jesus. She's like, well, but didn't you see me on Thanksgiving, like serving? Okay, there's a lot more that, that I could say about this passage, but uh, I've been talking for a while. I'm going <laughs> to close with this. Two anecdotes real quick, Kirk. All right. St. Francis of Assisi, born to a wealthy family, was out riding one day and came upon a, a, uh, a man disfigured from leprosy. And Francis, uh, he was so moved by the sight of this uh, dis disfigured man that he got off his horse to, to embrace him, to give him a hug. And as he did so, the face of the man changed to the face of Christ. Mm. Uh, the other anecdote is from Martin of Tours, Roman soldier, who's a Christian. One day he encountered a beggar who was freezing and asked him for money. And he didn't have money to give, but he was so moved by this man's plight, this man blew with cold, literally blew, shivering that he tore, half, tore his cloak in half and gave him half uh, of, of, this, uh, of, of this cloak to keep himself warm. And that night he had a dream. And in his dream, he saw Jesus in the courts of heaven wearing this half cloak. Yes. And he heard an angel ask, Master, why are you wearing that shabby old cloak? Who gave it to you? And Jesus replied, my servant Martin gave it to me. Hmm. Friends, remember this when you encounter the poor and needy. Remember their needs all year, not just during the holidays. Love the poor because Jesus loves the poor. Amen. I, I can't possibly add to that, so I'll foolishly try. <laughs> uh, Christopher, you and I attended um, a very happy era in our lives, attended St. Christopher's Episcopal Church. And St. Christopher... Um, uh, often uh, sort of the, the patron saint of travelers um, because he, uh, the legend, I don't have it in front of me, so forgive me if I'm, I'm, I'm uh, mistaking it. Um, he was helping a boy um, who was trying to travel across a river, right? Uh, something like this. And um, uh, was carrying the boy, uh, first of all, in his arms and then on his shoulders and the water was up to his neck and he, uh, he almost begins to drown and he gets across. And, um, and it was our Lord that he was, was helping mm. across the river as well. Um, so this is, uh, this, there, there are kind of many stories of um, uh, helping, helping our Lord when we just thought we were doing the right thing and helping someone who was <laughs> vulnerable or weaker or, or, or a child. Um, I have so much to say, and I know we have other things that we need to, that we, that we would not need to, that we want to talk about, um, <laughs> about uh, the, the basically the Christian invention of the hospital, and you, yeah. you covered that. Um, there are only hospitals in Christendom, and um, we have right now the um, we are living off the inheritance of of, of Christendom that in some places is receding, um, and I think there needs to be some scholarship done on the phenomenon of uh, atheistic Christianity. Basically, people who are living um, Christian ideals, <laughs> Christian charity, um, who, who maybe uh, don't have a, 
um, a lively faith. Um, but this is Christians have brought hospitals wherever they have gone. The concept of orphanages of adoption is a uniquely Christian concept, and to this day, um, it remains Christians who are who are eager in line, willing to spend tens of thousands of dollars um, for the otherwise unloved, um, and so it, it remains a lovely mark of um, I think Christian piety, and. Um, to the extent that we do any navel gazing, I think you, I think you pointed this out. This isn't about fruit inspection, so we shouldn't read no. this and say, "Am I a sheep or am I, am I a goat?" Um, and to bring up Martin Luther obnoxiously one last time, um, this is a, a passage that haunted Martin Luther. Um, he was afraid. He wrote about this. He preached about this. That he was afraid that he was a goat, as he would read this. Um, in fact, he wrote. He wrote this about this. Um, he said, although I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinner, sinners. Um, you see, Luther was terrified of going to the left and admitted to hating any God who would so condemn sinners. And um, what Martin Luther later understood, um, once he had eyes to see it, is his assurance wasn't in looking back um, and, and, um, and seeing, uh, did I care for the poor or did I not? Um, because in the parable, you notice goats and sheep don't ask that question. They're confused at, at, on the last day in the sorting. Wait, when did I? When did I? <laughs> right. So um, we are not a sheep or a goat in the midst of helping our brothers or, help, or not helping our brothers because rather in the parable, the sheep and the goats don't recognize it. <laughs> so that is not a, a proper reading of it. Rather, our assurance was never in looking around. But, but Kirk, saying, I'm sorry to stop you. Also, not a parable. Um, like, so, like, this is not like a, a fanciful story. Like, there's a teaching that right, a teaching, Christ yes. will return and separate. Right, right. Yeah. Right, so it's a, it's a misunderstanding. That's why I use the term apocalyptic drama. Yes. Good. Yes. Thank you. Good point. Um, rather, our assurance is not in looking around in the midst, uh, uh, in, in, in the midst of our lives in anticipating the sorting, in anticipating the judgment, um, but rather our assurance always was in our baptism in our Lord Jesus Christ and our faith in his saving work. Um, so... Uh, I think I, you're right. There's something about the residue of the Reformation that gets us hung up in, 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 in looking at this passage and, um, and thinking about assurance. And you're right. It's not about that. So um, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't have any other further teachings on this because I, I think you're right that we can often draw wrong conclusions from this. I think we should go on to our theology segment. Let's do it. So this Sunday is Christ the King Sunday, the last Sunday in the church's year. 
And Christ the King Sunday is rather a Johnny-come-lately um, in the church calendar. In fact, it is, um, well, we've been talking about the Reformation, which is 500 years old. Um, we talk about the medieval church, which is a thousand years old. We talk about our Lord's life, which happened 2,000 years ago. But Christ the King Sunday is a very recent feast day, Christopher. It was instituted by Pope Pius XI in 1925. And it was only moved to the final Sunday of ordinary time in 1970. Um, so that means that it can occur on anywhere between November 20th and November 26th, um, because it's always the Sunday before Advent 1, which is the beginning of the church year. More on that in the coming weeks. Um, but it is fitting that as every year we walk the, during Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Holy Week, and Eastertide, we walk the path of our Lord. And then we enter ordinary time um, in which uh, we, we, we do other things. Um, but at the end of the church year, um, we recognize that at the coming of the Son of Man, um, Christ will be revealed for who he is, which is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you and I love, Christopher, the book of Revelation, in which we see uh, St. John the Divine's vision in which this happens. And so um, we, uh, you uh, mentioned that it's appropriate that this was the gospel reading. Um, and uh, because the first verse in uh, Matthew 25, verse 31, the first verse of this reading, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So we read of the judgment. Uh, but we also, you and I want to talk about the concept of Christ as king, uh, especially as Americans, um, when maybe unintentionally, um, unconsciously, we maybe gloss over that bit. Um, I think, especially as American Protestants, uh, in, on the wild west of American Protestantism, uh, we, there was a, maybe an obsession over uh, what is the tribulation, what's the thousand years, the final judgment. And so we look at the judgment and we miss the more kind of static, eternal um, fact of Christ as king. And so this is a good time to meditate on that and, and give thanks and praise that we do have the good, the one true king. Um, Christopher, we have a great epistle reading coming up. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 28. Um, this is St. Paul several times, and I want to highlight several times, uh, marvels at, stops to marvel at the kingship of Christ. Um, so we don't just get this in Revelation in St. John the Divine's vision. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, St. Paul writes, For in fact, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. And then he says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. So saying 
even Christ is subject to nothing. He is king mm. of all. And on Sunday, Christopher, we will sing hymns like crown him with many crowns and all hail the power of Jesus name, celebrating the Lordship of Christ. Um, I, I also, um, first Corinthians. Are you going to sing? Are you going to sing? Come you thankful people come. Oh, we did that last Sunday. Okay. Uh, because because we uh, we talked about that hymn, uh, I don't know this summer on the podcast. Yeah, and how how it has this interesting um, uh, dualism. You know, is you know what it was is when we talked about the wheat and the wheat. The yes, we wheat. did. Yep. Um, because it is both a harvest hymn and an apocalypse. I'm sorry, not an apocalyptic, uh, an eschatological. So that's a fancy word for saying the last day. Um, um, eschatology is is referring to last things yeah um and so like when christ comes on the last day um he will gather all his people in yeah yeah um but i, I want to highlight um before i before i hand things over to you um because you've got a great story to tell about being an american christian and uh um, the concept of mon divine monarchy divine monarchy um i want to highlight because we love to talk about the way up is down and um how our lord when he came in the flesh, in the incarnation, um, how he humbled himself and he laid down divine attributes. Um, theologically, this, there's a technical term for this. This is called the humiliation of Christ, where he lays down things like omniscience, um, omnipresence, uh, where he, um, he, he can- All the omnis. <laughs> yes, all the omnis. He can stub his finger and bleed. Um, he feels pain, he feels grief, he feels loss. Um, he becomes in man fully, fully man, we confess as Christians. And this is the, this is, we call this the humiliation of the second person uh, of, of the Trinity. And, um, and this is a lovely thing. He says, I came not to serve. I'm not to be served, but to serve, <laughs> right? Um, I think you've used that verse 10 times on this podcast and every time you've said it wrong. That's right. <laughs> I came to be served. I mean, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my Oh my gosh, put me out to pasture. <laughs> I need my pudding. Yeah, so uh, we've talked, we talk constantly that the way up is down and that mm. Christ demonstrated lordship, demonstrated power, demonstrated authority, by laying it down. And um, we as Christians, we understand what it is then to have Christian authority, Christian power, um, is to be a servant and to be a servant of all. And uh, in Philippians chapter two is the most compact, succinct uh, statement of this. We read, um, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then comes the pivot. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, J.R.R. Tolkien, who was much more careful than C.S. Lewis to not do straight-up allegory in his fiction, nonetheless, um, Aragorn is Christ, is the Christ figure. And we see 
Um, similarly, just as Christ in his humiliation um, came to serve, we see Aragorn before his full glory is revealed as the king. He is first Strider, the, the friendless nomad who helps strangers. Um, and uh, so we see that, um, that the true, the one true, the good king, the king worth serving is the king who first serves. And so that at that day, at his coronation in Minas Tirith, um, when the hobbits suddenly, naturally bow before the one true good king, um, he has earned, um, we, we, uh, the hobbits feel naturally in awe that it is right to bow before this man who served them, carried them, loved them, nursed them, cared for them, and demanded nothing. Demanded, demanded no bowing of knees. And so then the hobbits rightfully recognize that, ah, uh, this is the one true king. And what do their hearts want to do, Christopher, on that moment? They want to serve him and they naturally bow before him. And um, it is such a good literary stirring um, in us when we read that, to, to yearn for Christopher on the last day in the eschaton. For, we yearn for when we read Tolkien, I want to bow the knee to a good king, to the right king, to the one true king. Christopher, you have a great anecdote about um, um, how strange it is as American Christians um, to, to, as we grate under that concept. Yeah, yeah, because what you often say is that Christians are monarchists. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and uh, the problem is, is, is we as Americans, we're very we're harshly uh, individualistic. Harshly is the wrong word. We are fiercely individualistic. And uh, so it was, was it John Guest? Who uh, was this English? Uh, English yes, John Greek, Guest, yep. Who ar arrived in, in America and was, I don't know, going through antique shops in Philadelphia and came across, across this uh, revolutionary era piece of, of uh, paraphernalia of 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 uh, tchotchke or whatever that that said we serve no sovereign here, you know because our associations as Americans our association with monarchy is with bad kings, um, and uh, what John Guest said to himself when he saw this sign we have we serve no sovereign here he was like how am I supposed to do evangelism here, how, if if these people are unwilling to serve a sovereign because we are associate kings with earthly kings with sinful kings with abusive kings but jesus is a good king um i, I also want to talk about the, kirk a little bit about the context of of you talk about pope pius uh founding this in what was it 19 1925 1925 yep. 25, yep. um that it was in response to issues at yes. the time and the issues were that um, the labor movement, yep. um, to, to nationalism, to socialism, they were turning to, honestly, earthly powers well, and seeing earthly powers as their salvation. Well, the Pope Pius's, uh, um, his particular context was Mussolini. Italians around him um, suddenly turning, uh, what did Mussolini say? Uh, nothing, nothing outside the state. <laughs> and um, so if your entire light... If your entire life is encompassed, your meaning, your purpose, your destiny is all within the state, where does Christianity fit? 
And so pa- yeah. Pope Pius says, no. Like, no, Christ is your Benito king. Benito Mussolini is not king. Christ is king. Yes, precisely. Such a bold move, I think. Yes. <laughs> now, lest we stupidly and arrogantly say, well, we're not nationalists. We're not, you know, we're not, um, we're not subject to this because we, we, we are a government of the people, by the people, for the people. Um, but our problem is actually probably worse because we are the voter and we think we're king. Right. We think the government works for us. And ultimately, um, we struggle with the idea of serving a king because we believe ourselves to be sovereigns. You know, um, like a, We use uh, that word. Little... The citizen is sovereign. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So um, in, after a contentious election season, um, when a lot of people are grieving the results, either nationally or Senate or House or, or gubernatorial or state, whatever the, whatever the case may be, um, we as Christians, uh, this has been a drum that we've been pounding, Kirk, yep. uh, we serve a different king. Um, and uh, in a democracy, we vote, we are active, um, but we do not lose sight that uh, Jesus is the king and that we, um, no matter who wins these elections, that we pray for our leaders, we, we try to influence them, but we don't get caught up um, in grief or celebration right. that our party won because that, that's not our king and we are not our king, that we serve a sovereign in heaven, a good sovereign. Yep. Amen. Shall we move on to culture? Yes, I'm super intrigued and a little scared. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. So this is a super long episode. Uh, congratulations on the, um, uh, you, you get more for the same amount of money. So uh, I want to talk today about, uh, you know, a topic that is often forgotten. I'm kidding. I, I, I'm actually setting this up poorly. I want to talk about masculinity. Uh, and, and kind of tongue in cheek, uh, someone pointed out to me that yesterday was International Men's Day. And I was, Kirk, did you know there was something called International Men's Day? I didn't know it, but I'm not surprised. There's International Women's Day uh, in the spring, uh, but of course we have we have um, certain days and months to help remind us, uh, especially of marginalized groups. You know, we have Black History Month um, in February, and I don't know if you knew this, Kirk, but <laughs> what's weird about Hispanic Heritage Month is that it's like half of September and half of of October, but it's because um, a number of uh, Spanish-speaking countries. Uh, have their Independence Day kind of clustered at the end of uh, September. But anyway, it's, 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 it's good to mark these things, but it's weird that men get their own day since men generally have been privileged through the ages. And it's like, uh, I guess we get our day because women got their day too. Um, but just like sin corrupts things and corrupts both 
a vision of masculinity and and in fact sees all masculine um sin can see all masculinity as toxic or um can see uh or people or can praise what is toxic masculinity so i want to share a quick anecdote to kind of get get at what i'm trying to say um i remember in college i had a friend the, the least likely friend introduced me uh to mountain biking now i think i'd been mountain biking a couple of times before then just single track um through the woods it's fun if you think biking's fun like if you're going fast between trees on a on just a a, a flat um narrow trail it's pretty cool but then when you add technical stuff like going up and down over logs and bumps and it it is a challenge it is dangerous it is it is something that gets your testosterone pumping absolutely yeah and just uh i was so high on i was euphoric after doing this discovering this and my friend took me out to uh moraine state park uh park uh, state park in in western pennsylvania that had these uh mountain biking trails and i was just euphoric at talking about like how we oh like I was, uh, I was kind of like, uh, I'm not sure what, the, what it means in the transfiguration where it says that Peter did not know what he was saying. He was like, oh, we should build a house for you. This is good. We should build a house for Elijah. And, and you know what I'm talking about, Kurt? Yeah. Um, that's kind of what I was talking like. Like, I didn't know what I was talking about. I was like, oh, this is, this is so cool. We should have a manly club because we could do manly things. And, and, you know, my testosterone was pumping. And I was, I was like, we should feel like this all the time because it's great and i remember kind of relating this vision i had of like this manliness club <laughs> um to to meg who was my fiance at the time and i remember her kind of uh being a little bit put off by the idea of like celebrating masculinity uh because and, and i to this day I, I don't know you know we haven't necessarily revisited it but i didn't know why in her view, um, and this I think is probably just cultural. I don't think it's personal experience of, you know, personal trauma with a toxic masculine man. Cause her, her father's a very gentle, gentle mm -hmm. man. Um, but uh, um, in her, her, in her view, I remember being shocked that in her view, all masculinity was toxic and abusive. And hmm. so today I want to talk about masculinity in a good way. Um, just like we talked about um, how Jesus is a good King in that just because earthly kings are abusive and sinful that doesn't ruin the idea of kingship um that uh there is something called biblical masculinity and i've been thinking about this a lot um because uh i, I had a friend share with me a book called recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood um that um there are conservative churches that uh are a bit uh, abusive and misogynistic in their um, suppression of, of women in the church. Um, uh, I don't think uh, Emily's listening. Uh, <laughs> she said our podcast is too talky, but Scott might be listening. So shout out to Scott. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, so I've been reading and, and just chewing on this, Kirk. So I wanted to talk about biblical masculinity. And then we had International Men's Day. And then I read this article, which I shared with you. I want to read a paragraph from this article that cracked me up. At the time, this is the opening paragraph and we'll link to this in okay. um in the facebook group uh at the time my wife and i were beginning to date i owned a broken bed the box spring had a biggish crack on one side which caused you to feel like you were being gradually swallowed in the night an effect seriously exacerbated by the presence of a second person 
I had not bothered to buy pillows when I moved to Milwaukee, reasoning that old pants stuffed in a pillowcase could not possibly feel that different. <laughs> I did, however, have a desk which I carried from the Salvation Army a mile and a half on my shoulders in August. I should mention here that I have never been what anyone would consider macho. It simply hadn't occurred to me that I was allowed to live any other way. And he goes on to talk about um, kind of his mat process of maturation and um, looking back on what he thought, you know, these masculine virtues in high school, he ran cross country, hating every moment of it. <laughs> I mean, it's a very amusing article. I mean, but like, it's, it's not like I want to recount to you, the listener, what this article said, but it spurred a lot of thoughts in me about um, biblical masculinity. And I'm going to say the essence of biblical masculinity. And then I want to hear what you have to say, Kurt, because I know okay. that you have really good thoughts on this. Okay. Um, I, I think that, um, uh, actually, no, I'm not going to be that simplistic. I'm going to talk a little bit longer <laughs> um, <laughs> because like, I, I do want to kind of, uh, define our boundaries here in that, um, uh, we, we have on the one side, um, egalitarianism and on the, uh, so that, that word is rooted in the sense of equality. Mm -hmm. Um, and on the other side of the spectrum, we have complementarianism, the sense that God made man and woman different for each other. Um, and when we see in creation, we see all these polarities, these kind of not opposites, but these things that are, are distinct, like night and day, yeah. water and, and dry land. N.T. Wright calls it the crescendo of binaries in Genesis Crescendo of binaries. And then he and makes it, man and And it woman. climaxes in male and female. In day, female. night, sun, moon, sea, uh, land, sea, right? And the climax of those binaries is male and female. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And so... Um, what egalitarians get, get right is that is this is this desire um, for equ equality. Like, of course, men and women should be equal. But where what they get wrong is um, that uh, oftentimes uh, equality uh, turns into sameness. Right. That's and, my mantra. Equal equal doesn't mean same. And where um, where I struggle with. Um, the sense uh, where I struggle with feminism um, is the first wave of feminism was great of seeking equal rights and equal access and all those things. But the later waves of feminism have sought um, something different. Um, and it's tied to um, the sexual revolution in saying that, well, men biologically, um, <laughs> Not morally, Kirk, but biologically, right. men right. want to spread their seed and be right. sexually promiscuous. And that um, if a woman really wants to be liberated, she ought to be sexually promiscuous too. Which um, uh, women aren't designed that way. And that's, a, and that's good. <laughs> it's not necessarily good that men are, you know, designed biologically to, to propagate the species, like in, in a way that's sinful, right? Um, that's, that's something that men have to check. Um, and um, likewise, uh, a woman's desire, uh, a, a contemporary feminist, and I know that we're in, in troubled water here, right, Kirk? <laughs> a contemporary uh, feminist um, may shame a woman for wanting to stay home and, and care for children, for making that choice, where um, a woman is free to make that choice, to work or to um, sacrifice career to, to to raise kids and many women make that sacrifice so so i've talked a little bit about egalitarianism so wh what about complementarianism um uh 
what's wrong about complementary, what's right about complementarianism is that it gets right that God designed man and woman to be different. What's wrong about complementarianism is, is the misogyny that's rampant in some complementarian circles. And, um, that oftentimes men sinfully lord their authority over women uh, in ways that were not designed in scripture. And so th- here's where I'll close and I'll shut up. Um, <laughs> is um, It's interesting how in the book of Ephesians that Paul says, um, wives submit to your husbands and complementarians love to talk about that. Right. The man is the head of the wife and the wife needs to submit while right. ignoring that the man has the more difficult charge. Right. That any view of biblical masculinity that doesn't find its meaning in the person of Jesus Christ, who, as Kirk talked about in the last segment, was a servant, and who Paul, when he tells women to submit to their husbands, um, also says, men love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you men are not finding, uh, if you are ta- telling women what to do and to submit without remembering that you are giving up uh, loving your wives as Christ loved the church and gave up his life, if it's not a servant leadership that doesn't lord authority, but instead lays down your life, um, then you're getting masculinity wrong. Yeah. So let's celebrate masculinity in the Christ-like sense, not the lording over others sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I think we've all experienced this in our life. Um, uh, this, this is just true. This is true lived experience. Um, the people who like to lord um, authority, power, strength over others are actually covering for weakness. Mm. Um, strength doesn't need to lord it over <laughs> others. Um, Absolutely, oh, they're compensating. Absolutely, <laughs> right. And so, and we know this, of course, because um, our Lord, who is the Word that spoke all things into being, never had to prove His power or authority, um, but rather demonstrated it by 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 healing, and dining with sinners, and forgiving sins, and for washing lepers clean. <laughs> and so that's what strength and manliness and authority is, is servanthood. Um, I, I guess I would say- if you, if you use the word beta, you're not masculine. <laughs> if you talk about other men as being betas, right. you, that is not masculine. That is not strength. Right, right. I mean, some of the, some of the, the manliest fathers um, that you will ever know um, only ever- serve the people in their care, never making demands of them ever, uh, never, never maligning them, never making it clear that they were the big dog in the proverbial locker room. Yeah. So, so this, this brings us, Christopher, to, I guess, my, uh, my concept, not my concept. I didn't come up with this. I've seen this <laughs> elsewhere. This is Kirk's thesis. <laughs> this is not my it's not, thesis. It's not from the Bible. It's not from Jesus. It's from him. Uh, this is this is one of our sloppier episodes because I think every moment that we grasp go to grasp for a cl- climactic citation or concept, we just like slip off, slip, fall down the stairs, right? So uh, I'm trying to remember the Lutheran theologian. Is it Scott Preuss? Um, it's a really infer- in, uh, influential American Lutheran theologian who said, if you want to know 
what um, what uh, uh, godly manliness is. It is being a strong forgiver. It's tender mm. strength. Um, because as fathers, we are types of God. We are shadows. Um, we are to be in our lives, um, in, 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 in small, uh, uh, um, imperfect ways, um, what God is truly to all in perfect ways in the end. And that is ultimate strength that is tender to sinners, tender to transgressors. Um, and so you want to know what manly strength is? Manly strength is being strong and yet forgiving and pardoning those around you. It is not the stern, silent father, but it is the calloused, strong hand that picks up the weeping child, um, that comforts the exhausted mother. That's what godly manhood is. You want to be strong? Be strong. Lift weights. Have strong hands. And use that strength and tenderness to forgive, to forgive, to absolve, to lift up. That's all. That's all I have to say. <laughs> I think that um, when, I, when I heard that, I, that, everything, every male archetype in the Bible snapped into focus. And I'm like, yeah, that is absolutely what, what it is. Um, we believe that, um, that manhood and womanhood in some imperfect post-Edenic way, East of Eden, somehow reflect uh, the image of God, the imago dei is the fancy Latin word for that, that um, technical theological concept. And so it seems to me that that is what, um, in some way, the, the essence of God's manhood that we are to reflect, refract, to shine on to those around us. So what do you think of that, Christopher? It's good. Yeah. Yeah. And so we affirm <laughs> manliness and femininity. These are good things. Um, that doesn't mean that women have to have long hair or wear dresses. Right. Um, and and that, that, that doesn't mean that uh, what some people may refer to as a tomboy um, is, is like uh, sinful or not like, like there's, you know, there's a, right. There's a spectrum of femininity that, that, that's good. Right. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, and, and that's, in that sense, like we are affirming complementarianism, knowing that, that, um, uh, that that term is tainted for some yeah. um, b because of the abuses uh, kind of on the side of, of, of those. Um, but, but uh, we don't want to, we don't want those people to define terms that, that we yeah. feel are, are, are good and biblical. And I guess we should, we should end by saying this as well. We, um, Christopher, it was part of our vision. It's been unspoken lurking in the background of the podcast, but I feel like that it hasn't been spoken has, I think in a good way, blared forth. Um, which is we're not culture warriors, um, but we need to gently, humbly uh, say that uh, uh, manhood and womanhood, male and female, are uh, inherent categories, um, and they do reflect the image of God, and there's, there's no getting around that. Um, and we don't say that stridently. We're not going to talk lots about that, um, but, but, but Christians at some point do need to, um, do need to um, affirm that winsomely, humbly, but simply and clearly. Yeah. Kirk, shall we pray? We should pray, especially after alienating probably 74% of everyone slightly to the left and slightly to the right of us. <laughs> <laughs> Listener, definitely give us feedback. Um, 
Yeah. Let, let us know what you think about this. Definitely. Please, 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 pretty please. Um, and with that, with that begging, pretty please, <laughs> let's end in prayer. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in your well-beloved Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth, divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed and brought together under his most gracious rule, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. O God, the source of all holy desires, all good counsels, and all just works, give to your servants that peace which the world cannot give, that our hearts may be set to obey your commandments, and that we, being defended from the fear of our enemies, may pass our time in rest and quietness through the merits of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Lighten our darkness, we beseech you, O Lord, and by your great mercy, defend us from all perils and dangers of this night. For the love of your only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Talk next week, Kirk. Next week, Christopher.